0: Alright, so this week I met with one of my favorite professors, probably my favorite professor, and Hunter can attest to this, that he's probably the most influential professor my entire time in seminary. And he he retired this year to go into full-time ministry. Uh, he began a ministry called Pathway Learning, and uh, we're going to be partnering with them this year. And I want to tell you a little bit about what, what they do and the conversation I had with him that was just very impactful. Uh, he recognized that there is a need around the world to have qualified teachers, uh, especially in areas where there's a lot of persecution in the church. So I spoke to him after he returned from China, and that kind of sparked Hunter and I's conversation. We mentioned that earlier this week, a church in China was literally dynamited to the ground, a big church that was, that was actually registered. And so in, the, in China, there are registered churches and there are unregistered churches. The registered churches are sanctioned by the state. They are heavily regulated, but as long as they adhere to the regulations, they're supposed to be able to gather. But this new president has enacted legislation. It was supposed to take effect February 1st, which is now gonna increase persecution on any assemblies, especially religious assemblies. See, in a communist government, they do not want the people to gather. So anytime the people gather, it's a threat. And especially when you gather and tell someone they have freedom in Christ, It's an even bigger threat. So they've ramped up their destruction of these churches, and uh, one actually happened this week. And in the next few weeks, that is going to be ramped up. And so uh, when I had a chance to sit down with uh, Steve, is his name, this week, and just talk about his experience over there, he really came back to America with a shell shock. Because there, there's a deep hunger and desire for the things of God. Because the church is growing rapidly, and what they need more than anything else are people to teach and continue raising up disciples. They are so starved for teachers that people will travel 12 to 16 hours on public transportation to be in a service. They will wake up at 4 in the morning and pray all day. So you've never been in a prayer service until you are praying with people for hours on their knees in tears. The church that is so hungry for the things of God that they will meet in secret. Because if they don't, they could be imprisoned, they could be tortured. They're even now forcing abortions because they do not want Christians to multiply. Now China has a law limiting childbirth for everyone, but for Christians they take it a step further. If you are caught in one of these assemblies, you could be taken to a hospital and have a forced abortion performed on you that day. And the church is growing like wildfire. You could lose your house, you could lose your job, you could lose your standing in culture. But they are willing to do it for the sake of Christ. He also described what it looked like to go and gather with the church in China. Because any assembly is going to be shut down by the government. And so they don't, they don't give anyone more than a few days warning. If you schedule something a week out, the government will find out and they will show up. And the police will escort you out or worse. So when, when, when the church gathers, there's this amazing network of believers and cell phones are a powerful tool because they send out mass text messages, usually within 24 hours of where the meeting is going to be. He talked about attending a service in the back of a bank. They were led through the vault. They were led in a a secret stairway. They were led up to to, to offices that had been abandoned. They were all wired for sound and video. Hundreds of believers coming from all over. And when they wouldn't fit in, in the large office space, there would be individual offices that would have video pumped into them. And people all over the building are worshiping together. A little different than the picture here. One thing that really stuck out in my conversation. The question he gets asked more than anything when he comes back to the States is why does he think that the church is growing so much in China? Why is the church growing so much in West Africa? These are the places that they're focusing on the most. Because in China, they're rich by all means, but they are persecuted by a government that is hostile to them. In West Africa, they are poor by all means but they are persecuted by Muslims who will slaughter them on sight. In both of these areas, the church is growing and the church is hungry for leaders. And so when people ask him when he returns home, why is the church growing there but not here in America? And he has a simple and sobering answer. Because they need God and we don't. Now that shouldn't surprise you, but it should get your attention. Because God's desire for his people is that they are so dependent on him and that their faith so drives everything that they do that all the rest of the world seems like foolishness. And God is raising up a people who are not afraid of their adversaries but know that their victory is in the Lord. A church in China, their only desire is that they would worship in freedom. And we worship in freedom. But they also know that if they were given that freedom, they would be tempted to take it for granted like we do. It's a difficult conversation to have with someone, China says, all I want is what you have in America. And he says, all I want for the church in America is that they have what you have. So I want to take a story that we're familiar with this morning. The fall of Jericho. And I want us to think a little bit deeper about it. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the, the surrounding text and where we find ourselves at the beginning of Joshua. But I want to ask deeper questions about the nature of the church and the nature of our faith. And hopefully, I will get you to ask some questions that we don't normally ask. In this church in China, in this church that is surrounding Jericho, seem like they could be two completely different churches. One is on the defense. One is on the offense. And on the surface, it seems like they're in different places. Hopefully by the end, we'll see that they're not so different. Let's look at our text this morning. We're in Hebrews 11. This is one of those fun texts where I get one verse to preach on, and there's not a lot of details in here. So we're going to read this, and we're going to spend most of our time in Joshua. That's part of what happens when you go through an expository series, and you go verse by verse, and it does not give us much to go on, but it is referencing Joshua, which is rich. And we're going to pull a lot out of that. So Hebrews eleven thirty, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God, mighty and powerful, in word and in deed, high above the heavens, yet dwelt among us. You are, God, worthy of our faith, worthy of our honor, worthy of our praise, worthy of our obedience. Let us be a people who walks in faith, who trusts you, who relies on you, who is dependent on you, who needs you. I just pray by the end of this morning, The believers in this room will rejoice in the victory that we have in you. If there's anyone in this room who does not know you in the victory that we have in you, that they would look not to their own strength, but to the one who died to secure the victory of those who put their faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, so we're in this transition between Moses and Joshua. We've we've been looking at Moses and Israel coming out of Egypt for the past few weeks. Now we're going to transition into Joshua, this great leader of the people. So turn to the book of Joshua with me. I'll kind of tell you a little bit about what's happened. Another 40 years has passed. Remember, Moses' life was marked by three 40-year periods. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 40 years in the wilderness again with unfaithful Israel. And all of faithless Israel had to die off. So Israel was not the biggest nation. They were not the strongest nation. And if you remember when they left Egypt, they left as slaves. They didn't have an armory. They didn't have an army. They had faith in the Lord. Whatever weapons they had, they probably pulled off the beach from those dead Egyptians. Remember when they sent the spies into Canaan, the spies came back ten of them and said the people are giants. The Hebrews are always a very optimistic people, right? (laughs) They're giants. We'll never stand a chance against them. But they forgot who their Lord was. So we find ourselves in Joshua 1. I'm going to read chapter 1, 1 through 3. And we're going to look at a couple different passages. But we're going to spend most of our time on this fall of Jericho. But I want to set up the scene for you. So the end of Deuteronomy, it says that Joshua is a man who is filled with the spirit of God. Because Moses put his hands on him. So the same God that was guiding Moses is now guiding Joshua. But Joshua was also the kind of leader that while he was alive, all of the people remained faithful. This is different than the leadership of Moses. So here's where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. So this is a battle cry, right? God says, I am giving you the land into your hands. My promise to Moses will still be a promise to you. And this is an important transition because everyone we've looked at in Hebrews 11 up to this point, they were looking forward to a land of their own. They did not have a place to call theirs. And now Joshua is the one to bring them into the promised land. And what stands in their way is Jericho. So turn with me to chapter 5, which is probably one of the coolest and most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. We were talking about this the other night, and and sometimes we think that that Scripture is dry, but there's this this deep sarcasm sometimes that just speaks to me, maybe maybe just just me. But look at the end of chapter 5. So when they approach Jericho... Joshua, this great leader, this great man of battle, is getting ready to approach Jericho. And what happens? Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. It's a great answer. (laughs) I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That's an entrance. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord have to say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place that we, where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is another transfer from Moses to Joshua. A man who stood before the burning bush on holy ground has died. And a new leader is standing on holy ground. The commander of the Lord's army standing before him. That should give you some energy for battle, right? I love that. So now we turn ourselves to chapter 6 where we find ourselves. So they're in the promised land. They've gotten the backing of the Lord's secret service. And now they're standing before Jericho. Verse 1, chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because, the, because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all your men of war going around the city once. Uh, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast from the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. If you were asking a modern military strategist, this is not the way you would approach a battle. If anyone other than God said this, it would be purely stupid. It would. This is God we're talking about. The weapons are not tanks. They're not missiles. They're not even chariots or arrows. They're horns. It looks something like this. I was going to try to blow it this morning, but I was advised against it because I didn't get enough time to practice. And I was not going to make a fool out of myself. But these are not, these are not musical instruments. As Hunter mentioned last week, That Israel was a musical people. They had developed all these musical instruments and all of their praises went up to God. But the ram's horns and the um, oxen horns were not for music. They were for battle. They were for warning that an enemy was uh, approaching or they were a call for the men of valor to stand up and go forward in the name of the Lord. And When these horns blew, it would have been this loud, shrill noise that would have gone on for miles. So now we find ourselves at Jericho. God has given this commandment. We're going to fast forward. We all know the end of this story. Verse, Verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the things in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of a sword. So here's what we know. We know that God promised this land to his people. We know that he brought them there. We know that the armies of the Lord was behind them. We know that he gave them instructions to circle around the city seven times, and God brought the wall down, and then they slaughtered them. This is a fun bedtime story. But what does this mean for us? And so what I want to do is I want to ask some questions going forward. But first, I just want to uh, tell you a little bit about what's happening here. um, Jericho is this great fortified city. Jericho is right at the entrance to Canaan. And so if you were to inhabit the the promised land, this was a um, strategic imperative. You had to take Canaan. This was the first city that was standing in their way. And they were also a wicked pagan people. They had a city full of devoted things. They had many gods and none of them were Yahweh. So not only was God giving his people a place for their home, but he was also destroying this fortress dedicated to pagan deities. But Israel had no hope on their own. They were not going to be able to take down these walls by themselves. But they had the hand of the Lord with them. So something I think is worth noticing uh, I mentioned many times, if, if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with a lot of songs that are sung for children. Some of them have great theology and some of them have terrible theology. This is one that has terrible theology. This song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho, anyone remember that, that song? If you grew up in church, you've, you've heard it. Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling down. Um, I'm not going to sing it. That's, that's as close as I'll get to singing publicly. But I went back and looked at the lyrics. God is never mentioned in this once. We teach our children to sing that Joshua fought this battle. We just read the text. What did Joshua do? Joshua was obedient in faith. Who brought the walls down? Who brought Jericho to their knees? Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one gives us the explanation for that. Should be up on the screen. The horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. No matter what's going on in the surface, the Lord's hand is behind this. And the Bible is full of these examples of the impossible to the mind of man. We could never picture that a city with these great fortress walls would just fall. But do you remember from last week, what is God's greatest motivation in everything he does? What is God's greatest motivation? His what? His glory. Well, who gets the glory if Joshua fights the battle of Jericho? If Joshua leads the people, if Joshua is the savior, who gets the glory? But if the people march in obedience to the Lord and they just shout and the walls come tumbling down, who then gets the glory? Who gets the glory if David is this big strapping warrior that steps up to Goliath mano a mano and punches him in the nose? David. But who gets the glory if this little shepherd boy with his stone on his first try knocks out this giant? Because David knew whose power he came in. What about Gideon? Who gets the glory if Gideon marches with tens of thousands? But God widows him down to 300. People who don't know how to drink water, right? And... And God gets the glory and wins the battle with some clay pots and a couple swords. This is how God works in the impossible in our mind because his desire is for his glory. So, that is the first thing we have to understand about this battle. The second thing is I don't know if you ever do this when you read these stories, but I like to put myself into the mind of the people in the story. What were the people of Jericho thinking? Because it says that they are terrified. They've heard of everything that the Lord has done. And they're standing up in their fortified city and they're looking down at these people. The first day they march around. Okay, what's going on? Second day they start to march around. Third day, fourth day. If you're anything like me, I'm like, what are these idiots doing? (laughs) Uh, They've got this. this is crazy. These people lost their mind. How much different is that than the world looks at us? Why do these idiots march to church every week? Why do they march to Bible study? Why do they read the same book over and over and over again? Don't they know that's not how we do things? The Lord has chosen the foolish things of the world. Show wisdom through his people. But the people... Not, we're not concerned with Jericho. They weren't concerned with the fortress. They were concerned with the fear of the Lord, and they were obedient. The text in Hebrews tells us that the, that the walls fall after it was encircled for seven days. It was not their actions, but their obedience that brought the walls down. And no matter how strange it may seem, like Noah building an ark, or Isaac bringing his son up the mountain, it is by faith that the Lord works. And by faith that he uses his people. And this to me, I would argue, is probably a greater act of faith than the Red Sea that we saw last week. Because to me, I feel like the Red Sea is probably your, your, your best bet. Because you've got angry Egypt behind you ready to kill you. You've got fire leading you and a cloud behind you protecting you and the, and the ocean opens up. I think I'm moving forward. But I don't know if you're anything like me, Marching around a city once or twice, three or four times, I might start to get a little skeptical. But the faith of the people was to trust the Lord day after day after day. And one of the hardest things to do in the life of a believer is to trust the Lord when it seems like nothing is happening. Is to trust the Lord when it seems like God is slow to fulfill his promises. Let me ask you a question. If the Lord was to tell you I'm going to do this in your life I am the Lord, I say it but do what I tell you to do and exactly what I tell you to do for seven days could you do it? Sounds easier than it really is. I don't know how many people who call themselves Christians who I've talked to who are struggling with either uh, temptation or some kind of battle in their life or even just wondering what the Lord's will is and they say how do I know what do I need to do and they want me to give them some easy answer on, on a platter and usually I'll ask a few questions if you come before the Lord in prayer what does God's word say most times there's a less than favorable answer to both of those questions and so usually if someone does that and if you come to me and say what is God's will for me in this I will probably tell you to pray To stay in God's word for at least a week. Do that and then come back to me. You know how many people have taken me up on that? None. How hard is it to say, I'm going to come before God in prayer and seeking His will through His word for seven days? We've got so many other things competing for us. We don't need God. We've got the playoffs, we've got the news. We've got Florida with sunshine. There's what? I don't know where to go with that. (laughs) So, you ever wondered why things don't go easy in your life? I do. You ever wondered why God does something this way and not that? You ever wonder why He had to march around Jericho for seven days? God, why don't you do this? If you were to do it in a more direct way, if you were to do it in a way that I would understand, it would make more sense to me. You think God's more concerned with making sense to us or with his glory? And in many times, it's not that God is slow to act, but God is doing something in us that is growing our faith and testing our faith that can only be done over time. Because if it were easy, we wouldn't give God the credit. If things happened at the snap of our fingers, we wouldn't be able to see him at work. And when it seems like it's impossible and there is no earthly way that this could ever happen, and then it does, we have no choice but to give God all the glory and all the praise. Has that ever happened in your life? There are so many times In our life, so many stories I've heard from you where it seems like there is no way that this will ever come to fruition. There is no way that we're ever going to pay these bills. That there is no way that we're ever going to get out of this situation. And then the Lord delivers. And we can give praise where praise is due. Or we can forget like Israel tended to do and go on. But the lesson here is not the people of faith for a moment when everything makes sense. It's people who have faith day after day when it doesn't make sense. Because we know that the Lord is faithful and we know that just as he promised to Joshua to give you a land and inheritance, he promised that to his people. And if this mighty city was brought down by the power of faith, what means should we call on in our battles? Our ability to do things in our own strength, to try harder? Because it's very unlikely you will ever stand before a fortress like Jericho. It is very unlikely that you will ever have to fight with a sword against the forces of evil. But it is guaranteed that we will encounter spiritual strongholds. It is guaranteed, like our brothers and sisters in China, that there will be people who do not want you to worship in the name of Jesus. It is guaranteed that your own flesh doesn't want you to worship in the name of Jesus. And we war against that daily. So my next question is, what type of battle was Jericho really? I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I think we get some insight here. Second Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse three. Second Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish disobedience when your obedience is complete. There's a few things I want you to see in this text. First of all, there's so many texts we could go to for this. We can go to Ephesians 6 and the the armor of God. But this is sufficient to get the point across. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Because these things are temporary. the, The weapons are a little more lasting. And they are given with divine power to God's people to destroy strongholds. And Paul knows that the strongholds are not external, they are internal. Verse 5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. Our greatest battles are not on the outside. Our greatest battles are with ideas and doctrines that are contrary to God's word. But our weapon... It's again not on the outside. It is not our brute strength or our own understanding. But it is taking every thought captive to Christ. Every thought. It is applying the gospel to every area of our lives. And how are we to do that? Sometimes we read past this because we always spend time on verse 5. But look at verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the walls fell after seven days. We're able to overcome these strongholds when our obedience is complete. And it is an outpouring of our obedience, our faith in practice over time, with God's power that delivers us from the strongholds in our life. So when we battle in our lives... We may not be standing before a fortress, but we are stand- many times we are standing before a wall that seems like a spiritual blockade. Do we battle according to the flesh or do we battle according to our faith? Do we fight battles by our might or a mind that has been renewed and transforms us into the image of Christ? God doesn't need our obedience. He commands it. And he promises to complete what he has proclaimed. We are to be obedient people like Israel. In our Bible study on Wednesday, going through Romans, this great conversation when we talk about the nature of our faith. Where was our faith secured? It was secured on the cross. Because at the cross, in that act of sacrificing himself, Jesus went into the holy places. And fought the battle for us, once and for all. On that day on the cross, he conquered the power of death forever. And one day, he will conquer the power and influence of sin forever. The victory over death was accomplished by Christ on the cross. The victory over sin will be accomplished in the last days. So what battle are we still fighting? By trusting in him. You're not trusting in your own power. You're trusting in one who's already fought an enemy that is defeated. An enemy we can't see. That is the ultimate victory. That is the victory that is behind everything else we do. Because coming out of the cross, if it is finished on the cross, our victory is assured. And if our faith is in the one who accomplished his work on the cross, our victory is assured. But if we're still fighting in our own strength, our own battles, and our victory is uncertain, what does that say about our faith? We forget that He is our strength. He is our shield against the flaming darts of the evil one. Temptation, pride, lust, fear, those are spiritual battles. Those are thoughts we can take captive, reminding ourselves of the gospel. Because for every believer, you know that any power that had a hold over you was nailed to the cross. And persecution is not personal. Because they hate you like like the ruler of this world hates your master. And the battle that is going on is much bigger and much greater than us and the victory is much greater than anything we can ever fight in our own strength. Revelation 17:14 gives us a great picture of this. It'll be up on the screen as well. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. This is the nature of spiritual warfare. They will make war against the lamb, and and he will make war against them, but he will conquer them. What is our role in this? Look at that last line. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Oh, to be called chosen by the king of kings and the lord of lords. Oh, to be seen as faithful by the God of the universe. When we stand on the power of the lamb and his victory, we stand as chosen. We stand with our faith in Him. 1 John 5, 4-5 through five, says something similar. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Hold it there for a second. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Do you ever think about your faith like that do you ever think about the gravity that trust in a savior overcomes everything that the world has to throw at us because people talk generically about faith all the time there is no faith on the planet that offers that unless it is in the conquering king himself and keep going Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That is what true victory is. There is no overcoming without Christ. There is no victory for the believer without faith. There is no faith if it is not in the Lamb, the King of Kings. We have no victory apart from Christ, nor should we want one. Most talk of victory these days sets their sights way too low. Most talk of victory these days is over temporary things and temporary battles. It's like looking down at the ground when the sky is on full display. We will fight battles here. Some will feel like we've, we've lost. But the war has been won, and the victory is the one who trusts in the Son of God. God. And for the church in China and the church in Jericho, the external battles look very different. But the nature of the battle is exactly the same. The weapons they use are the same. And the victory is the same. Because we are ultimately saved by grace through faith in the one who conquers. But along the way, we are saved by grace through faith in the one who conquers. We are delivered from our suffering and from trials by grace through faith in the one who conquers. So what is the nature of victorious faith? Dependence on the Lord. It must begin with God, we need you. This is not my strength but yours, not my will but yours. This is not my battle but yours. Continual obedience, day after day whether it makes sense or not. Knowing The victory is the Lord's. And the final battle is won. This text that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 draws all of this imagery together. The trumpets blaring on the final day. And death and sin and its hold over people is a victory. Because where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? But for those who trust in Christ, there is victory, and death and sin cannot hold them. And Paul goes on to exhortation after that. So therefore, beloved, continue in the Lord and know that your work is not in vain. Meditate on that passage this week. It's such a great explanation of the gospel and what Christ accomplished in victory. And if you missed it, it was 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. So how do we conclude this morning? It's by way of encouragement. God's relationship with his people has always been the same. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is driving history. That does not change. But in his sovereignty, he uses our faith to accomplish his his purposes. Who are we to be chosen to accomplish his purposes? Who are we to be called faithful? But what gives him more glory? If we were capable on our own and did it, or if we were weak and frail? He accomplished mighty things through his people. His glory is much greater. Because we are weak. and He is strong. So one more thing to note. Hebrews talks about in chapter 3 that Joshua did not bring the people into the final rest. He brought them into the promised land but that was not God's final resting place for his people. Canaan was a land flowing with milk and honey but what God prepared for his people was so much greater. He has a place prepared for them that will never pass away. And when the Lord has his final victory over Satan, that will be the home of the believer. And this is everything that Hebrews is looking forward to. Because those who conquer with the Lord, as Revelation tells us, will endure to the end. And unlike any fortress that man can build, or any church building that man can bulldoze over, this kingdom will not be shaken. This city promised to God's people will never be destroyed because he is its builder and maker. A holy, heavenly city fortified. Glowing with the radiance of God's glory for all the world to see. It is in the light of the Lamb that this city will shine for eternity. And this is the eternal kingdom promised to everyone who is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And by faith, we are hidden in that Lamb and no power of hell or no scheme of man can overcome it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you that you do not change, that your character is steadfast through the ages. You're good and righteous and true. When you promise to care for and provide and guide for your people, you will do it. Lord, help us to put our faith in you, our trust in the victory that you have secured for us. Not in our own strength, our own abilities, but let us stand tall in our faith. Let us be bold, standing on the finished work of Christ, who is the just one and our justifier knowing that we will stand with him in victory forever and ever and ever. Amen.